Hello, welcome to my podcast, Paper Son, Chinese American Citizen. This is episode five. In the last episode, we saw the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act and its sister legislation, the Immigration Act of 1882. I also discussed the political background that immediately led to the legislation. I already spoke about the sister legislation to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Of course, I'm referring to the Immigration Act of 1882. So 1882 truly became a watershed moment and year for United States immigration policy and law. Both the Chinese Exclusion Act and the 1882 immigration law set the future course of America's immigration laws. Many of the processes and systems that we all recognize today started with the passage of those laws. The Immigration Act of 1882 established categories of foreigners deemed desirable for entry into the United States. The Secretary of the Treasury was given the authority to enforce the law. That act also set a head tax of 50 cents for every immigrant entering the United States. That tax was intended to defray the cost of administration. And remember, the Immigration Act was intended to apply to European immigrants. Now, I mention all of this for purposes of context. Much of the information I encountered in my research about the Chinese Exclusion Act did not mention the Immigration Act of 1882. Therefore, it is easy to isolate the Chinese Exclusion Act as an act of villainy, racism, or simply misguided. But the Chinese Exclusion Act, however, becomes less shocking when it is viewed as part of a more comprehensive approach by the federal government toward immigration administration. With the Chinese Exclusion Act, American leaders tried to carve a middle ground between the anti-Chinese advocates and the cosmopolitan elites. At the time of its passage, the act was described as an experiment. It was drafted in an ambiguous fashion, 
reflecting the doubts of the nation in excluding the Chinese. The act was an attempt to weave different opinions into a sound, sensible, and effective immigration course. The period of time immediately after the passage of the Exclusion Act is referred by some as the restrictive period. That is, an experiment of whether or not an immigration program could be based on race, national origin, or class. An experiment also on what an effective immigration program should consist or encompass. Ultimately, the course must confront the questions of who should be an American and what is an American. The national voice had not yet at that time called for more aggressive immigration control. That would change. That same period of time, early in the new era of the Exclusion Act, is also called the driving out. That period is noted for its violence against Chinese. The purpose of the violence was clear. Expel the Chinese already living in America and deter the Chinese from coming to America. The instances of violence are well known. In 1880, a Chinese minister in New York was assaulted by young ruffians while the police stood by and watched and laughed. In Tacoma, Washington, about 600 Chinese residents were forcibly taken from their homes, put on trains, and transported to Portland, Oregon. Commenters from that time believed the vigilantism and the violence were a predictable outcome because of the federal government's failure to adopt a more thorough, top-down approach to the Chinese issue. The violence darkens that period of American history, no doubt. Things reached a crescendo in the fall of 1885. In Rock Springs, Wyoming, many Chinese were massacred. Word of the incident reached China. United States officials worried about reprisals against United States officials and civilians in China. As the acts of violence and vigilantism escalated, those acts began to drive the political reaction. Slowly, public sentiment began the view that all Chinese had to go. That, they believed, was the only way the violence would stop. Restriction began to evolve into exclusion and expulsion. Congress would need to close the gate. The violence continued. In the mid-1880s, the stories are rife of the Chinese being forced from their homes by angry mobs in many Western American cities. In September of 1885, 
delegates at a mass rally in Seattle against the Chinese issued a manifesto to remove by force, if necessary, all Chinese out of the Washington Territory by November of that year. The United States government sent troops to Seattle to stop the measure. Instead, as was the repeated pattern of that time, the soldiers harassed the Chinese. The residents joined the vigilantism. In 1886, President Grover Cleveland declared martial law in Seattle. Also, in 1885, locals in Rock Springs, Wyoming, violently attacked Chinese. At least 28 Chinese were killed. Again, federal troops were brought in. Afterward, Chinese officials and diplomats demanded something be done. The United States government grudgingly agreed to pay $147,000 in indemnities to Chinese survivors of the Wyoming incident. The murderers somehow escaped justice. The two immigration laws of 1882 began a bureaucratic system that really had not existed before in the United States. Big government had arrived, including returning Chinese to America between the years 1851 to 1882, a period of time of relatively unrestricted unrestricted Chinese migration. It is estimated that 10,000 Chinese entered into the United States each year. After the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese entry to America slowed maybe by only as much as 15% each year, despite the restrictions. Thousands of Chinese still arrived into America. Many of those that entered after the Exclusion Act were illegal entries. The United States land borders were an issue. The Chinese Exclusion Act did not address the land borders with Canada and Mexico. In the Washington Territory, one government official quipped, quote, Chinese were coming every day by water and by land, by boats and canoes, end of quote. It was estimated up to 2,500 Chinese each year were entering illegally into America at Washington Territory. Smuggling had become one of those unintended consequences of the new law. And it was a booming business. Immigrants paid the smugglers as much as $100 for their services. Most of the smugglers were white men and Native Americans. In some instances, old established businesses that previously had nothing to do with immigration found it more profitable to smuggle Chinese than to do the business they had set out in the beginning to do. One such company was Hua Chang, a Seattle company with roots going back to the Civil War. It was a merchandise transporting business. In 
illegal immigration was becoming an international issue. United States and Canada clashed over their efforts to control Chinese entry. Meanwhile, government bean counters pushed rosy statistics showing the new law's effectiveness. The numbers were, of course, exaggerated. Once the Exclusion Act became the law, then came the arduous and daunting task of interpreting it and enforcing it. Congress only added $5,000 to the Treasury Department's appropriation to enforce the law. Enforcement of the law fell on the Customs Service, a branch of the Department of Treasury, because it already had trained personnel. None of that personnel, however, had immigration experience. The line of command was Secretary of the Treasury to the Commission General of Immigration. Enforcement officials were not given any clear instructions. San Francisco was by far the largest port of entry for Chinese immigrants. For Chinese immigrants. Port towns in Washington was also popular. Enforcement was initially by only a handful of government officials. Then, enforcement officials had to rely on their own interpretations of the new law. They tended to interpret the law strictly. So strictly that spouses and children of clearly exempt persons were denied entry. The ambiguity and the inconsistencies of the exclusion law invited interpretations that exceeded the exclusion law's intent and purpose. The Exclusion Act, for instance, did not define any of its terms. What was a laborer? What was a merchant? Who was Chinese? What about spouses of the categories that were exempt? How about children? What about American citizens of Chinese descent? Also, questions immediately surfaced as to the proof standard of each of the new law's requirements and classes. It's easy to see how inconsistencies persisted. As we will learn, some of the most consequential issues caused by the Chinese Exclusion Act involved Chinese Americans and their citizenship rights. The Exclusion Act applied to all Chinese, including those born in the United States, and were seeking re-entry into the country. Did the new law apply to Chinese as a race, or only those from China? Did it make any difference if a Chinese person was born in Europe? I think you see the problem. The Chinese Exclusion Act exempted from its provisions merchants, students, teachers, diplomats, and tourists. The exemptions were made in the law so as not to offend the United States treaty obligations to China. 
The new law was also silent on those migrants claiming they were merely passing through on their way to Canada, Cuba, or South America. Women themselves were not separately exempt under the law. That created problems for them unless they met one of the exemptions. Congress had assumed that the law's exemptions would only apply to men. The confusion, puzzlement, and ambiguity with the new law did not end there. Even those Chinese persons claiming merchant status were still subject to physical exams, harassment, and intensive interrogatories by custom officials. The same as laborers. In time, Congress would clarify the law and and define some of his classifications. Once immigrants entered San Francisco Bay, an immigration official would board the vessel and separate the Chinese from other Asians. San Francisco emerged as the strictest port to gain entry. Initially, the policy of United States officials was to presume all Chinese were excludable until they could prove otherwise. This is what they call, in legal parlance, irrebuttable presumption of exclusion. The law allowed returning laborers to America to regain entry if they could prove they were American if they could prove they were in America before the Angao Treaty of 1880. After the immigrants were ashore, the men were separated from the women. Children under 12 stayed with a parent. Those holding satisfactory paperwork were released. Numerous court challenges eventually extended the Exclusion Act's exemptions to include American citizens of Chinese descent and the children of merchants. United States courts also created exemptions that did not exist in the Act. Sometimes those exemptions were created for compassionate reasons. Other times, Those exemptions were created not for compassion or concern for the Chinese, but they were created to serve American imperial and commercial interests with China. For the first 20 years after the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, both state, primarily California, and federal courts heard over 9,000 habeas corpus cases. Those were filed by the Chinese, arguing they were illegally detained. Children and spouses of migrants were allowed by the courts to enter America. Wives of United States citizens also won their right to enter. Roughly, however, 50% of the court seekers were denied. Not until the 1890s did Congress create a federal framework for the uniform administration of its immigration laws. Thank you for listening. <laughs>